Hey there, Crawl Space listeners. We wanted to bring you a special holiday edition feed drop today on Monday, Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day out there to all. And this episode is episode one of Empty Frames, our art crime show that focuses on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in 1990 in Boston. Yep, we're uh, getting season three up and running, and we start off with a bang here with renowned author Casey Sherman, who has written a lot about uh, Boston history and uh, has been following and, and I guess has his own independent investigation surrounding the, the Gardner heist and the recovery process for the uh, all of those artifacts that were taken back in 1990. Yeah, and he kind of puts some pressure on the museum and uh, the trustees, the board of trustees. So it's kind of an interesting interview, but one of the reasons we wanted to play it here on Crawl Space was because we covered a lot of subjects. And one of the subjects we discussed was Whitey Bulger. And Casey Sherman, uh, the author here that we interview, he has a new book coming out called Hunting Whitey that is getting some great press. And it comes out this week. Yeah, it comes out on May 28th. And this is a book about Whitey Bulger and uh, the the rule that he had in Boston back in the day, but also his capture, his, his capture uh, when he was the most wanted from the FBI. Yeah, and his killing. So it really goes through the entire thing. So it's uh, I can't wait to get the book. I've pre-ordered it. It's coming to my house on Thursday, so I really can't wait. And he also talks a little bit about a moment where he kind of got attacked by uh, this fellow named Greg Floyd, who uh, used to live up really close to where Maura Murray went missing and has kind of been talked about uh, in regards to that case because of his violent past. Yeah, Greg Floyd is always talked about with Maura Murray, and Casey Sherman wrote a book called Bad Blood, Freedom and Death in the White Mountains in 2009, and he went to Greg Floyd's uh, trial or arraignment. I'm not sure what the... what the te- Sentencing, I think. Was it a sentencing? Okay, he went to the sentencing, and he, he only brought this up because we asked him, Casey, you've covered gangsters, and you've had books about the Boston Strangler, and you know, you've been around the block with some uh, pretty... Uh, you know, uh, interesting sort of seedy individuals. And did you ever fear for your life? Do you ever fear for your safety? And he said the only time he did was when he was cornered in the bathroom by Greg Floyd. And that is pretty telling. Yeah, it really, and it's a pretty, pretty kind of scary uh, moment as he describes it. Um, And especially when you know Greg Floyd's past, it's particularly startling. So, uh, so there's that in there. We talk a little bit about Tom Brady as well. It's mostly Gardner heist, um, but it's uh, you know it's a really w- sort of wide ranging and, and interesting conversation with uh, a really talented author, someone who is um, has has written this book that may end up on uh, the bestsellers list um, this week or next. Oh, for sure. And and check out everything that Casey Sherman's done. He's uh, you just mentioned Tom Brady. He wrote Twelve, which is the inside story of Tom Brady's fight for redemption. That's the full title, and it's his uh, battle with the NFL and Roger Goodell. It's not really a football story as it is more like a I don't want to say a David and Goliath story but it's about I think it's corporate intrigue corporate intrigue yeah yeah it's about taking on the 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 corporate uh, powers that be he he wrote two fascinating books uh, about the Boston Strangler so we need to get him back on crawl space to talk about his experience with the Boston Strangler his aunt Mary was the last confessed victim of Albert DeSalvo and he wrote a rose for Mary uh, the hunt for the real Boston Strangler he wrote that with Dick Lair and he wrote another book with Dick Lair called Search for the Strangler, My Hunt for Boston's Most Notorious Killer. So those were back in the early uh, 2000s, 2003 and 2005. And uh, very, very interested to talk to him about his experience there because 
rarely do you get someone so closely uh, connected to a notorious serial killer. This is true. And so check out all of Casey Sherman's works. There's a link to his Amazon author page in the show notes. And make sure if you want to hear the entirety of Empty Frames Season 3, check out Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com because Season 3 will be airing on Stitcher Premium for the first six months of its existence. It will also go to YouTube as a video version, but it will hit the public audio airwaves six months after its release. However, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, and you can listen to the first two seasons there, and you can get season three when it comes out in six months. Thanks a lot for listening. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome to Empty Frames. I am Tim, being joined by Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better. How are you today, Tim? Also couldn't be better because we're back. This is season three of Empty Frames. Of course, this is episode one, and what a momentous occasion. It really is. We did season one all about Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist, 1990 in Boston. Season two was the bridge season where we focused on other art crimes and and moments in art culture. And if anyone's asking why there was such a gap between the seasons, there's a bit of a, a roadblock when you're trying to get information about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. There's only a handful of people that sort of contain the information. They keep it close to them, and they're the experts, and you have to really do a lot of legwork to pull in information from outside sources that aren't typically associated with the with the heist or the research of the heist or the museum. Well, Lance, you're kind of giving our audience a peek behind the curtain a little bit of what we've had to do to produce Empty Frames. And uh, of course, there was another podcast called Last Scene that was done about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. The Boston Globe has uh, written several articles and they were part of that podcast. So they do kind of have a local stronghold on the story. And again, we've never really talked about this or, you know, the struggles in producing this show, um, which really is based on trying to help the community recover this art. So this is kind of an introduction to that. And I don't know where this season's going to go, Lance, but our guest here in episode one is quite the boat rocker. His name is Casey Sherman, and he's a really prolific author and 
filmmaker. Right. And he is also a local uh, man from Boston, very familiar with the heist, very familiar with the players that are involved in the museum and and I guess in a sense the recovery effort. But this is where it gets a little uh, tricky, right? The recovery effort is uh, debatable. They have a particular way, the museum, when I say they, I mean the museum, they have a particular way where uh, they want to recover the artwork. They want it all re- all returned. They have a reward on it. It has to be in reasonable condition uh, and, and all together. And season three, like you said, is going to be heavily focused on the recovery effort. Season one kind of set the stage for the players. But honestly, at this point, it doesn't really matter who pulled off the heist. What matters is putting those pieces of art back where they should be in Isabella Stewart Gardner, in her home, in her museum that she created. Those things need to go back on the walls and people need to appreciate them. And when we talk to Casey, we're really towing the line of like, what is this? Is this an industry for the museum? Are they, is the board of the museum actually purposely not putting out a recovery plan that is reasonable just to continue this, just to perpetuate the heist. If you have this that you care about, you say that it is important to culture to, to get these pieces of art back. We wanted to talk about uh, the, the security director, Anthony More. He did the walking tour of the museum during the uh, anniversary over St. Patrick's Day. The it was a virtual walk. walking tour. The heist walk. Yeah, is what they call it. And obviously the quarantine right. has kind of closed the museum. And not kind of, it's it's closed currently. Um, hopefully it will be open at some point. But yeah, so I, I to your point, they are now really opening up or promoting the heist. And, you know, I think it's a great thing, to be honest. I think they should. Well, I think they should promote the heist. If you're saying they being the board, I think they should promote the heist. But I think they should also be very open to another sort of recovery effort if they're genuine in their desire to get that artwork back and and put it back on the walls. If they're actually genuine about that, they would listen to people like Casey Sherman and and Turbo Paul. They 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 fully support a recovery effort where it's it's a price list. If you have, I mean, realistically, those those pieces of art, they're not all together. If they were all together the recovery would be so much easier. They would have been found by now if they were all together. Those things are spread out. They they were used for various purposes. If someone has one, you can simply return it. No questions asked. So there's a price list for it. Here's what each one's worth. That's a no-brainer. You want to get the ball rolling on this, show a little goodwill. And they're not doing that. They're just sticking to their guns. Okay, everybody. Well, let's play the interview with author Casey Sherman, and we're going to get more into these points in the outro, and we're going to discuss the interview with Casey and all the points that he hits. We'll kind of go over them. And uh, so check out Casey's work. He's written a book called Bad Blood. That was about the Leco Kenny, Bruce McKay, and Greg Floyd triangle of fate, as we like to call it. Trifecta of violence. Yeah. And he's also written a book about Tom Brady called 12 that'll be out in September. And his newest book that is coming out in May, at the end of May, it's called Hunting Whitey about Whitey Bulger. So check out Casey Sherman's books. He's got a bunch of them. Yeah, I also want to bring up the book A Rose for Mary. Not a lot of people know he wrote this book in 2003. His aunt, Mary, was uh, one of the last victims or one of the last victims that Albert DeSalvo confessed to. Uh, he was uh, allegedly the Boston Strangler. So Casey Sherman has a direct link to the Boston Strangler, or at least to Albert DeSalvo. Entrenched in the city of Boston and its culture, he's been working as a journalist for years in the city. 
He and Dave Wedge wrote Boston Strong about the Boston Marathon bombings, a city's triumph over tragedy, and that's what they made the uh, the Mark Wahlberg movie uh, based on. He writes for the Boston Herald, an institution in town. So I definitely agree that he is a voice that needs to be heard. We are being joined now by author Casey Sherman. Casey, how are you today? Hey, good, guys. How are you? Oh, we're doing so well. Great. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us here on Empty Frames. Uh, very exciting to have you on for season three, and hope you're feeling well. You uh, you recently traveled for, for your book signings, and uh, we finally got to work out a time to uh, get you on uh, the Empty Frames airwaves. Uh, how's everything going? Yeah, everything's going great, knock on wood. I was in uh, Portugal in the beginning of uh, March just for a couple of days before the uh, the wave of COVID-19 kind of swept across the entire world. So I was able to uh, uh, get out of there unscathed and completely healthy. And I just wish that, uh, you know, everybody at home listening to this uh, is, is healthy and safe. That's the priority right now. Yeah, for for sure. I mean, it is such a weird time out there right now. And uh, when we were messaging back and forth, you had said that you were traveling and it was right during that. And uh, yeah, to make it out unscathed is um, is is quite a feat. So uh, and we do appreciate you uh, sending well wishes to the listeners out there. We've sort of uh, been familiar with your work for a while now. We uh, we talked about the story of Lico Kenny, Bruce McKay and Greg Floyd, that that crazy moment that happened in Franconia, New Hampshire, and uh, and your book Bad Blood on an episode of Missing Maura Murray that we did a couple of years ago. Um, so that that is something that that story is very familiar to us. And when we saw that you were writing about the gardener, we were like, we got to get this guy on. We've been uh, sort of talking about you for a while now. Well, I mean, I'm glad you bring up the uh, you know the Lico Kenny case, which happened in uh, Franconia Notch, uh, 2007. And that was uh, an explosion of violence that you only see, you know, in major Hollywood films. And for it actually to happen in a rural community like Franconia and the uh, the scars and the pain that that community still, uh, you know, still has from that particular uh, violent crime. That's what drove me to, to write that book. You know, there's always a story within a story. And I remember covering that particular case and uh um unfortunately i'd covered a lot of police shootings uh you know during my time as a journalist and they all they all fit the same um script if you will uh hero cop uh the shooter is a bad person and uh um and then then, and with this particular story you know an alleged good samaritan that came in to save the day but uh you know taking a, a real independent look at that case it was anything but what it seemed and I think that's the same uh, case with the with the Gardner heist as well, which we are now, uh, you know, unfortunately getting into that, uh, um, you know, 30 year uh, anniversary uh, without any real answers to uh, not only what happened and we're piecing those answers together, you know, over the past few years with a bunch of different investigators and journalists, but more importantly, where the art is today. 
Right. That is an important element that people sometimes don't really consider as as heavily as the theft itself. Uh, When we started covering it uh, in season one of Empty Frames, we found that a lot of people like to theorize about who did it, uh, you know, the the getaway route, all, you know, just like the, the theft itself. But there hasn't been much of a public push. Uh, for any like logical recovery effort until kind of recently and and I think that's what we were trying to do in season three and also to have you on to talk about it is you know talk about the importance of bringing the artwork back and showing it to the community again showing it to the to the world at large again that this can be something that's not a, a true crime folktale anymore right and you know there's a great deal of mythology surrounding a case like this and it's the ultimate you know who done it with regard to um, you know, Boston criminal mysteries, you know, that it's really the, the last one out there. You know, there was, uh, um, you know, the hunt for Whitey Bulger, which um, culminated in his arrest in 2011. And, uh, you know, there are questions about the Boston Strangler case over time. Both cases I've been uh, heavily involved in. Um, but the Gardner is, is really the last one. And, you know, the scary thing is when you reach out and try to get any information from the so-called experts and the investigators on this case, I think they're as clueless as the rest of us. And why do you think it is that they are clueless, but they don't really seem to, um, <laughs> I guess, say that they listen, we don't know? Oh, I, I think it's the, you know, institutional arrogance. Um you know, I've got uh, I've got a, a great relationship with the Boston office of the FBI. I've got a book coming out called Hunting Whitey in, uh, in May, which uh, really is a story about how a, a small FBI team, uh, after so many years, uh, you know, formed a, uh, the perfect strategy and cast the, uh, the best net to uh, to ultimately capture Whitey Bulger. So I've got great respect for the FBI in Boston. I don't think that the Gardner heist is a priority for the FBI office in Boston, quite frankly. Uh, they've got other cases that they're working on, um, and these are life and death cases in many uh, uh, many instances. Um, you know, I lay the, uh, you know, I guess the responsibility more at the feet of the director of security at the Gardner, Anthony Moray, who's, um, you know, been working this case for 15 long years, and he just doesn't have anything to show for it right now. Well, you are from Boston, and when we hear those words uh, from people, including yourself, the analogy that's always made is if you were Bill Belichick and you were coaching for 15 years and you didn't win a game, then then people would be screaming for, for the dismissal. Uh, do you think that that's a pretty accurate uh, comparison? Yeah, no, it's funny. I actually wrote that because, uh, you know, here in Boston, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we look toward, uh, you know, the success, whether it's a sports team or an investigation and, um, you know, looking at uh, Amore's track record. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I used to be very friendly with Anthony and uh, had a lot of respect for him. But, you know, when you do the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result, you know, sometimes it is time for a change. And I do think that, you know, his narrow mindedness, uh, especially with this particular case and not allowing other um, real experts in terms of recovering stolen art uh, to become part of a team um, really, uh, to me, uh, you know, is is the wrong way to approach um, recovering any of these stolen art pieces. Ah, I see. So you're talking about Arthur Brand and uh, not letting him work more closely. Is that who you mean? 
Well, I think Arthur is certainly first and foremost in my mind. I've written several articles for the Boston Herald uh, about Arthur Brand and his um, offer to become very involved with recovering the art and doing whatever he can at this point to get that art back. And I've spoken to Anthony Amore um, personally about Arthur Brand, and Amore has dismissed him uh, to me, which I think is kind of the wrong approach when you have a uh, you know, a successful art investigator who's got a track record of success. And then you have a guy like uh, Amore, who's, again, spent 15 years working on one case and has absolutely nothing to show for it. And again, I think it also comes back to um, the idea that uh, it's one reward as opposed to 13 individual rewards. And again, you know, Arthur Brand has uh, certainly uh, um, championed that effort along with, you know, other investigators as you guys probably know there's a um you know former art thief in the uk uh called uh, paul turbo henry who's been uh pitching that idea for for several years now and to just be dismissed out of hand as uh as if it's the wrong approach to me is not the right approach at all to recovering any one of these missing pieces to think that all 13 are still together um you know is is uh, beyond the imagination for me. I feel like you could go down two paths with that. You can get lost in these arguments about whether or not the artwork, in your opinion, is all together or why it would be separated. But that's completely different than uh, a recovery effort saying you can return them uh, one piece at a time. And that doesn't matter if they're all together or separate, you know? Uh, so I don't see why, like you said... Uh, another approach would be dismissed out of hand like that. Right. And I think it's the proof of life concept, you know, in criminology where uh, I think that anybody, you know, the thieves themselves, whether they have all 13 or two or even one, you know, they, they want to see a successful transaction take place, which means, and again, if you read the um, language in the reward, you know, there are, there are those red flags where it talks about, recovery of all the art in good condition well good condition is an arbitrary you know uh, piece of language here um you know the the thief may be bringing it back and these art pieces have been gone for 30 years not in the pristine condition that they were when they were taken from the gardener on march 18th 1990 um so to think that they're um you know in any condition that may be um labeled good by the art uh, experts themselves, I think that that gets us into murky waters. And that may be one of the reasons why the thieves haven't come forward. What's your opinion on the statement of uh, it, them being returned in good condition, knowing that some of them were literally cut out of their frames? Like they're already not in good condition, let alone what's happened to them in the last 30 years. Do you think that's just an impossibility? Uh, I do. I mean, to think that, and you're absolutely right, these artworks um, were damaged uh, during the heist itself. So uh, the idea, again, that they're all in good condition to me is a, is a long shot. I think, you know, that language should be, uh, you know, tweaked or revised. You know, the, we just want the art back, regardless of what condition they are in. You know, there are art restorers who can work on these types of pieces to actually you know, get them or improve them enough where they can be put back on the walls of the gardener. But I think, you know, beyond the beauty of the individual art pieces themselves, the idea that the 
art is returning uh, to the Gardner Museum would help with a lot of healing within not only the art community here in Boston, but um, the law enforcement community as well. Yeah. So you think an individualized reward price list is the way to go or just something to try? I think it's something to try and, and why the hell not? Yeah. You know, nothing has worked thus far. And that's, you know, that's the, been the frustrating thing for me in terms of, you know, where the investigation has gone over 30 years. Uh, as I said, you know, I, I, I do have a lot of respect for Anthony, but I also uh, understand that after 15 years, there has to be some type of change. And if he's not, you know, removed from his position as the so-called investigator for the Gardner Museum, then the museum should support him by bringing in you know, legitimate art investigators to help him uh, succeed in his efforts. Now, when you say the museum should help him to bring in legitimate investigators, is that like the board of trustees at the Isabella Stewart Gardening Museum? Who would be in charge of that? I mean, I think that would be the board of trustees decision to, uh, you know, um, open up the umbrella a little bit and, and allow for people like Arthur Brand to come in and work uh, um, in cooperation with Amore or anybody else uh, to recover these uh, these stolen art pieces. It just makes sense. A team effort as opposed to one individual like Anthony, who, you know, unfortunately, Anthony thinks he's the hero in his own action movie or his own suspense movie. You know, he wants to do it all by himself, and that's uh, proven um, to be a disaster, quite frankly. I think he would be better served to bring in people that have actually successfully recovered stolen art to help him with this particular quest. Yeah, because your point is that the FBI isn't too active on it, so it kind of just leaves Amore alone. And uh, we do know he's he's done some writing. He's written some books. You uh, Were, were you going to make a movie with Anthony at one point? Uh, well, I optioned one of his books, which was Stealing Rembrandt, and I really wanted to just focus on one particular story, which was an art heist at the Worcester Art Museum. And it, when you're in Hollywood, and I've made two you know, successful Hollywood films, The Finest Hours and Patriot's Day. And as a producer and a writer myself, you know, what I do is I acquire uh, certain, you know, pieces of material or um, or IP, as they say, and try to develop it. That was a story or a book that we really couldn't develop because all of the information wasn't fully baked in uh, in Amore's book, I may go back and revisit that case at some point, uh, possibly with a with a, a different um, team, if you will. But uh, that's what I said. You know, I mean, I, I've been friendly with Anthony for a long time. I've helped him get adjunct professor uh, positions in Boston. I do like him personally. But when Anthony started to, uh, I guess, jump the shark, if you will, by, you know, promoting and publishing you know, coloring books about stolen art, I thought, well, here's somebody that may have taken his eye off the ball here, and it's time for a change. Okay. What's your response to people when they question why you would be the one to say, guys, we need to shift gears here, and maybe Mr. Amore should open himself up to other options? I mean, you know, again, I'm I'm a voice in the wind, if you will, but uh, as somebody who's a seasoned investigator and best-selling author in, in, in Boston and somebody that knows the criminal world in Boston, you know, my voice is as, as legitimate as anyone else's. Uh, if anybody else has any other uh, uh, theories or options or plans in place, uh, I'd be happy to know about that as well. 
So what is your opinion on the Gardner art? Do you, uh, do you have an opinion on where it is or who may be responsible? I, I know you've done some writing on Whitey. I'm wondering if that connects. Yeah, uh, and, and I can tell you, uh, as a matter of fact, it does not. And I'll be able to uh, talk a little bit more about that when the book comes out. But, uh, you know, we've heard directly from Bulger uh, with regard to uh, his possible role in the Gardner heist. And I think that, uh, um, you know, anybody that thinks Whitey was involved in it should probably look, uh, um, you know, to other possible um, thieves or, or or organizations that may have the art right now. Now, Arthur Brand believes much of the art is in Northern Ireland and that there was some type of, uh, um, you know, trade with the IRA at some point over the past 30 years. That's That could be plausible. I know that you know, Whitey Bulger had nothing to do with it, but that doesn't mean that the, uh, you know, stolen pieces aren't, uh, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, outside of Belfast. Wow. So you guys talked to him directly about that. That's incredible. Uh, we didn't speak to Whitey directly, but we have uh, direct knowledge of his, hmm. as they said, involvement or, or lack of involvement in it. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. Is that a, uh, is that a scary concept? Cause I don't know who you spoke to as like the, um, the in between, but, just in like considering being involved, and I guess this goes into your uh, your history as well, uh, being involved in the the criminal element. Uh, what what kind of adrenaline is that? Like, does that does is it exhilarating? Is it frightening to to know that you're about to meet with somebody who's connected to Whitey Bulger or somebody of that ilk? You know, not at all. I mean, probably my uh, feeling about that would have been different if it was the late 1980s, early 1990s where Bulger's uh, power was immense uh, in South Boston, then, of course, I'd, I'd be a little concerned about that. But I lived in South Boston in from 1990 to 1992, and I'd you know, met Whitey Bulger on occasion because he was everywhere in Southie at the time, and we, I was living right at uh, 10 Thomas Park, which was right down the street from John Connolly's home as well. Um, so, it, 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 you know, living in that environment, uh, back in the 19, early 1990s as a college kid. I was going to Boston University. At the time, it wasn't frightening for me. It was more uh, of an exciting endeavor than it was really thinking about, well, am I putting myself in harm's way here? Now, as a professional investigative journalist, I've certainly had to do that on occasion. On occasion. And there have been times with regard to the Leco Kenny case that uh, you know I was fearful uh, for my life, especially with my uh, contact with with Greg Floyd on a couple of different occasions. Wow, that is something. Uh, that's something. If you're willing to uh, come on, missing more Murray to talk about, I think that'd be a uh, really fascinating topic. But um, yeah, that's that's. I would never have guessed that that would be the one that you'd be uh, fearful of your life over. That's incredible. Well, when you're when you're face to face with Greg Floyd in a very enclosed space and nobody else is around. Uh, and he is, uh, you know, swinging at you with a cane in a courthouse. Uh, you, you, you oh tend to, my gosh! I wouldn't say scared, but there's a big adrenaline rush, and you right. just want to, you know, get out of there with, uh, you know, your bones intact, so to speak. Wow! Yeah, I believe I've seen <laughs> wow. some. Uh, I've I've seen some photos of that. Um, I didn't realize uh, that. I feel like you were right. You must have been right in that uh, skirmish. Well, that skirmish actually happened five minutes after actually 10 minutes after his initial skirmish with me in a men's room in that courthouse in Littleton, uh, New Hampshire. So we were alone and I, you know, approached him 
uh, because I wanted his side of the story. And uh, he just went off like a bottle rocket and started swinging at me. And, uh, you know, seconds later, after I'm putting up my elbows to defend myself, the judge calls a verdict. He goes out to the courtroom, uh, is convicted of intimidating his neighbor, which is what uh, Greg Floyd was charged with at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember my fellow journalists uh, in the gallery after I'd only been gone for about five minutes and my hair is disheveled, my shirt is ripped, and they're all asking, what the hell happened to you? And I said, (laughs) you wait. I said, once the verdict is read, watch what he does next. And sure enough, they saw uh, full well that he went uh, mad in the courtroom and then obviously in the hallway uh, leading to um, the elevator, which they brought him down and, and sent him away. And I remember I was the first person he saw when he got off that elevator because I'd already seen the skirmish. I'd been a part of it. So I ran down a flight of stairs and met him with the uh, sheriffs as they were dragging him into a uh, waiting car. And uh, we just shared a look together. And I said, goodbye, Greg. And uh, he didn't say anything. Wow. That is that is incredible and pretty much exactly what I have thought Greg Floyd would be like if confronted in a, you know, one-on-one in in an enclosed space. Uh congrats for making out of making it out of there. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um but again, you know, that's a that that continues to be a story with multiple tentacles whether, you know, Floyd uh was involved with the disappearance of Maura Murray, which is what your podcast is, is all about. I'd certainly be interested in hearing those theories because, you know, this is a very dangerous person um, with regard to the, you know, the Gardner heist. I think you had dangerous people involved in the initial um, theft itself. I think, um, you know, there's enough money on the line where, uh, you know, lives could be threatened if people get too close to the art without any brokering of, of funds one way or the other. So even though it's been 30 years since the Gardner heist, whomever that has one, two, or 13 of these art pieces, you know, they they should be considered dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We were uh, speaking with Jenny Seiler, who wrote the book about Miles Connor, and he's often spoken in in the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist circles as being someone who, if not was directly involved, might have planned or had a, a, a you know maybe contributed to the plan of the heist. What's your thoughts on Miles Connor? No, I think Miles Connor was a violent criminal, but I think he's also very smart, especially when it comes to art. If he wasn't involved with the direct planning, um, at least he was an inspiration for uh, for a heist like that. Okay, so you're saying maybe other criminals saw what he did. He was sort of a like a, a folk hero in the criminal world back in you know the 60s and 70s, and he also robbed the MFA. And you know the, that story has been people take some creative liberties when telling that story. And you, so you're saying maybe some of these other criminals are thinking like, I can get to Miles' level if we pull something off at the Gardener. Or, or, or well, if you know Miles could do it, so could we. And and how much are these art pieces really worth on the black market? Is there is there a market for you know um, this you know type of commodity, if you will? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And on that, do you, what's your opinion on the thieves once they saw the estimated value of what they stole, which I, I'm, I'm assuming they didn't know that it was going to be in that, you know, in that billion dollar range. Do you think in your opinion that that spooked them and they might have uh, quickly and irresponsibly either uh, shipped the paintings away, shipped the artwork away, or maybe destroyed them? Uh, And the second part of that question is, in retrospect, do you think that the museum should have not informed the public of the value of the art so as to not spook the criminals. Yeah, you know, um, in terms of publicizing exactly how much the collection was worth, probably did spook the uh, the initial thieves, whether they were working alone or working for somebody else. Um, but I think that they should have kept quiet in terms of how much the collection was actually worth, because um, then, you know, these thieves would have had um, at least confidence in their ability to traffic those items. Once, um, you know, the, that astronomical number was, was publicized through the media, I think it, uh, it, it closed a lot of doors, um, you know, for the band of thieves that were behind the, uh, heist. Yeah. And I think it might've closed the door as well a little bit when they came out with the reward for all of the pieces of art to be returned at once. I think that closed some doors as well. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I think that's why, you know, one of the reasons why we have not seen any of those art pieces uh, up close and personal for 30 years. Um, When you make a mandate like that and you, uh, um, yes, you're offering a reward, no questions asked, but it has to be the entire collection and the entire collection has to be in good condition. And again, um, who's to that? That's those are those are the uh, red flags that any um, thief or criminal, um, you know, would think about and say, wait a minute. You know, unless there is a a different way of thinking here or, um, you know, a revised set of circumstances, um, then they're going to keep the um, art where it is buried or in somebody's attic or in somebody's, uh, you know, cottage in uh, in Ireland. And what's your opinion on the um, the Tom Mashberg and uh, William Youngworth storm on the sea uh, moment that happened Back in '97, you think that is uh, was really the storm? Uh, I go back and forth on that. I like Tom. Uh, Tom, you know, if Tom says it was the the storm. I, I believe him. But again, I mean, you go about all the way back to 1997. That becomes part of the mythology and the lore of the Gardner case. Um, yeah. You know, truth is always stranger than fiction a little bit. But there's a there's a perfect blend of fiction and truth um, with the mythology around this. So I'm not sure now uh, whether or not that. Uh, that was the the storm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I go back and forth too. I think, uh, I think it's compelling and with the paint chips and everything, I don't know. Which makes it the perfect parlor game for a lot of people to be playing, but you know, we can all, you know, through our, uh, our, our collective armchairs, uh, you know, wax poetic <laughs> about theories behind the art uh, theft and where uh, the art is now. But, you know, uh, there's one guy, Anthony Amore, again, whose job it is to find that art. And that's really why I want to apply a lot of pressure on on not only him, but um, but the museum to bring in, um, you know, real legitimate investigators to uh, support Anthony's efforts and bring that art home. Yeah. 
Great point. Well, we did notice that the gardeners sort of rolled out a new feature at the museum, sort of like a like a heist walk, I think it might be called, where it's um, Amore in your ears, um, sort of narrating the heist as you walk um, through the halls. But they previously really never wanted to talk about the heist or really uh, discuss it at all. No, that's right. I think, you know, they're smart to market it because the more, you know, people that know about it, uh, the greater likelihood that you know, you have enough eyeballs out there, eventually somebody's going to see something. And I think it's smart for them to be marketing, you know, the heist, because, again, it brings a lot of uh, uh, relevance uh, to the uh, Gardner Museum itself. Quite frankly, it was the only reason I ever went there. A great uh, American and global global crime. So I'm glad they're doing that right now. And, uh, you know, kudos to uh, Anthony for probably pushing those efforts. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I would agree that's the only reason I've been there, too, even though I grew up in Medford right down the street my entire childhood and everything. Never even knew of the museum until the heist. I was a young kid, though. Um, but what a beautiful building. I mean, the architecture and the paintings inside. It's such a beautiful museum. Yeah, the lore of the heist brought me there, but the beauty of the museum uh, you know, made me stay there for an extended period of time. And I go back you know, every once in a while, I, I admit I haven't been there in, in quite a while. So I haven't had the opportunity to listen to Anthony's, uh, you know, step-by-step recreation of the heist. And Anthony knows what he's talking about. He certainly knows, you know, every step that the uh, that the thieves took, um, you know, while they were there for what, it was 88 minutes, I believe. And, yeah, yeah, 81. Uh, 81, I'm sorry. Uh, and, you know, so I think that's that's interesting for anybody to uh, experience firsthand. And that's like, you know, going on a Jack the Ripper tour where if you're in the East end of London, you know, it brings that type of criminal history uh, uh, to the present. Right. And speaking of uh, London, you mentioned earlier that uh, Paul Hendry, Turbo Paul has his turbo plan, uh, which is a recovery effort for all of the uh, pieces of the collection to be returned individually. What was your opinion of him when you, when you first met him? Because Tim and I have talked to him, and it's sort of like just getting on. It's sort of like getting on Route One in Saugus and just going at like seventy and and realizing like there's no getting off until you know until the road opens up a little bit more. Uh, well, what's your opinion on him? Well, I, I mean, you know, Turbo is eccentric, as I, as I mentioned uh, uh, in a previous column. You know, the characters around a Gardner Museum heist and investigation, you know, you, they're, they're pulled right out of a Guy Ritchie film. You know, you have a lot of these characters, and uh, you know, I'm always willing to listen to an interesting character. And I think, you know, uh, regardless of, 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 you know, Turbo's uh, motives and tactics, I do think that the idea that he first broached, which was the individualization of the uh, rewards, is a smart one. Yeah, yeah, we we totally agree. We think that he he comes with a lot of energy, and and once you once you absorb his energy a little bit, you can understand where his heart is at. And you're right; it is like all of these characters in a Guy Ritchie film. But he was doing this before Guy Ritchie was making films. You know, he was—I think he called himself a knocker, which was the person who essentially just cases the house, knocks on the door to see like what the right. interior might look like and where the pieces of art are. And he—I guess—he turned his life around and and is working as a liaison. So you know where his heart is at when he's so focused on a recovery effort. Well, you know, it takes a criminal to find a criminal in many ways. uh, You know, if you dismiss people like that, then you're, you know, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. 
in my opinion. You need those voices, uh, um, you know, to help guide you. And not just uh, turbos, but, you know, there are several voices in the, uh, you know, the Gardner Heist community. Steve Kirchin, who wrote a, you know, a, a brilliant book on the, uh, uh, the Gardner Heist. I mean, he's somebody that spent a lot of time and a lot of, you know, uh, blood and sweat uh, researching uh, this particular story. And, uh, and he has his own theories, but, um, you know, you want to be open to, um, you know, everybody's theory, because again, it only takes one theory, theory to be right. And you, you know, you should allow the in- evidence to lead you and not some preconceived notion of where the art may be. I'm just curious if you had a chance to uh, listen to the podcast Last Scene, which was the collaboration between the Boston Globe and WBUR. Did you hear the uh, that podcast? I've listened to a little bit of it, but you know, when you're writing books for a living and you're so entrenched in the stories that you're working on, and I've written, you know, now 12 books over the past, uh, I think, 15 years. So I'm always, you know, nose deep in a particular book project. So I've been kind of going in and out of that particular podcast. So I don't have any, uh, um, you know, real sense of, you know, how well uh, done it, it is. Right. And um, I feel like we can't let you go without asking you about Tom Brady. How you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to be... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm reworking our book uh, 12, which is about the, you know, the redemption of Tom Brady. And that's not a sports story, guys, because I oh, could really? care less about that. It's really a story about corruption within the uh, um, NFL and especially w- with the NFL uh, offices and Roger Goodell itself. So this was a, a corporate espionage story, much more so than it was, hey, look at Tom, uh, you know, beat the Falcons and come back from a uh, 28 to three deficit to win the Super Bowl. That's a great way to end a story like that, but I don't get interested in the story unless there's a lot of meat on the bone. And there's a lot of meat on that bone with, in terms of how Brady was treated, not only by Goodell, but by his Patriot family, uh, Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft. And we're, we're the first ones in our book 12 to really, you know, analyze that and put that to the forefront. You know, I knew this relationship would always end in divorce and a bitter divorce at that make no mistake that you know they're not walking away amicable friends here you know belichick and brady are walking away as the best of enemies and uh you know both hope to outdo the other next season and beyond wow so you're you're uh specifically talking about deflate gate or was it a combination of a, a few things that uh could contributed to this corruption Sure. Well, it was it was a combination of a few things, uh, but Deflategate started it all, especially, you know, fracturing the relationship between um, Belichick and Brady. If you recall, you know, Belichick basically threw his star quarterback under the bus, and it was the first time in Belichick's professional career where he did not have uh, his players back. Now, if you really want to analyze the story from a 30,000-foot view, Deflategate was you know, a, a minor infraction. It was a speeding ticket, became a capital murder case. The real issue between the NFL and the Patriots all began with Spygate so many years before. And um, Belichick was able to slip through Goodell's noose because Goodell was very close to Robert Kraft at the time. But the other NFL owners all went, you know, told Goodell in no uncertain terms, you know, if so much as there's a 
you know, speeding ticket for the Patriots again, you need to hang him high. And that's exactly what Goodell did to save his own position in his own career. Wow. So many hot takes here on empty <laughs> frames. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the certainly the soap opera of Brady versus Belichick is uh, really fascinating for for me, I know as a as a sports fan, who's kind of like my fandom, I would say, has kind of waned in the past years. But I do get really into stories like this. I can't kind of get enough uh, consuming the twists and turns of uh, a story like that. Yeah, it's a story that has great palace intrigue. And I, you know, I'll I'll tell you this: I've written you know books about the FBI. I've written books about the CIA. You know, the the toughest uh, fortress to penetrate was Fortress Foxborough and the offices uh, uh, of the NFL. You know, we we were very fortunate to get Tom Brady to um, uh, cooperate with the book and uh, the crafts. But, uh, you know, I chased Goodell like a dog with a bone, and uh, he refused to, you know, really um, give us his side of the story. So he, we had to recreate his side of the story using a lot of different elements. And, uh, you know, what I always, uh, what I think about Goodell now is the perfect, Nixonian figure, you know, a very paranoid person who believes that he's got uh, enemies and ghosts all around him and he'll do anything to uh, attain and retain power. And there's also a very Shakespearean element to this story, guys, which is the relationship between uh, Bob Kraft and Roger Goodell. And it was a very father-son relationship for a long time, all the way through Spygate. And then it became adversarial because in order for Goodell to maintain position, he had to metaphorically slay his own father, which he did with Robert Kraft and the Patriots. <laughs> That's incredible. Love it. I cannot I cannot wait to I cannot wait to see this unfold uh in uh in in film format. This is great. That is a that is an epic story. Yeah, no, we're we're excited about the film project. Um and we're really gonna look at it, you know, through the lenses of the the legal battle that was waged on Brady's behalf. As I said, it's not a traditional sports story. It's more of a kind of a, a unfolding John Grisham-like novel. And it all really happened, which, uh, you know, uh, amazes us even to this day. And you're, you're constantly seeing the dominoes continue to fall with regard to what, you know, originally happened through Spygate and Deflategate. Right. And would you say, in your opinion, that Anthony Amore is the Roger Goodell of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? Boy, <laughs> that's a great uh, comparison. And, uh, you know, I, as I said, and I, and I, I hate to say this, but I've just uh, I've, I've been left no recourse in terms of trying to get this uh, this art recovered. I think there's a lot of arrogance there. And I, I do think that you look at, who, you know, look at who has profited from the Gardner heist. I mean, the person besides the thief potentially that has really profited is Amore. He was a um, kind of a FAA investigator uh, before he landed on the scene with the Gardner museum, just by answering an ad and then, you know, rolled out a major public relations campaign to uh, increase his profile. Um, in doing so, he's written a couple of books. I even blurbed his first book, Stealing Rembrandts, but when he starts to, you know, publish coloring books about stolen art, I start to think, wait a minute, again, is this guy, you know, is his eye on the ball anymore? Was it ever on the ball? Who knows? But it's time for a change uh, either way. Yeah, well, that's great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us, Casey Sherman. We really appreciate it. And uh, we will definitely link to all your work in the show notes, your book 12, 
and Bad Blood and, gosh, everything. Well, I appreciate it, guys. And, again, uh, you know, I've got a new book coming out uh, called Hunting Whitey, um, May 26th. And this is the first in totally untold story about the pursuit, capture, and killing of Whitey Bulger. When I say and killing, you know, we have actually had access to the prime suspect in Bulger's murder. So you're going to see that part of the story, uh, which has never been told before. Wow. Wow. Well, anytime you want to come back on any one of our shows to uh, to serve up some more some more of those hot takes, feel feel free. Tim, this might be the first time we've actually had a, a legitimate Edward R. Moreau award winner on the show. Oh, I would say so. I think we <laughs> joke about winning that award, but that's just clearly jokes. But um, <laughs> someday, definitely, definitely humbled. Yeah, you're, yes. you're only as good as your next uh, project, in my opinion. So. You know, I'm very proud of the work I've done in the past and the stories I've been able to tell. Um, but, uh, you know, you always look at that that next mountain to climb and it keeps you keeps you hungry and keeps you active and keeps you focused as well. So happy to join you guys again somewhere down the line. All right, Lance, that was the interview with Casey Sherman. He uh, was not shy. Well, I really kind of expected that from Casey Sherman being a grizzled uh, Bostonian like he is. He really is entrenched in everything Boston, and that's part of the culture. No no punches pulled. Uh, nothing that he's going to say is not verifiable. Everything he can back up, everything that he says about people like Anthony Amore, he's said to Anthony Amore, and even says, Anthony Amore is my friend. You know, he's told us that Anthony Moore is my friend, but here are some issues that I have. I think there should be a time in every case that needs this, which is somebody who's like, I just need to speak out. I just I can't I can't worry about being polite. Yeah. And he's written some articles for the Boston Herald. And to your point, he has kind of said some of this stuff. So it, it is uh, it, it comes from a place deep down from him. This comes from a place that he really believes that this should be changed. And you know, speaking about the the recovery effort, how can you disagree? It's really hard to disagree with what seems like no progress. And it's a little hard for us to say, oh, there's been no progress. And, you know, no, for sure, because we don't know. You know, we have no clue, to be honest. I don't know what kind of job Anthony Moray has done. I don't know him. He's never given us the opportunity to really talk to him. So it's it's hard for us to say he's done a bad job. I can't even say that. But it does seem like, from our point of view, that things should be different by now. This reward price list is the most reasonable thing I've heard. And what's completely unreasonable is not considering it. So you have to take that and put it into perspective of anything else that has produced nothing uh, since 1990. If, if your task is to produce a win and you haven't done anything since 1990, yes, it is very unreasonable to not entertain other options on how to produce that win. And he also mentions Arthur Brand in the interview. And we had an interview with Arthur Brand in season one. It was an episode called Art Brand, which uh, 
is sort of a convenient um, name for uh, for a fellow who recovers stolen art or lost art. He's like the modern day Indiana Jones. And I, it's not like I just made that up. Everyone calls him that. He's the only guy that you would say, hey, if, if someone asked who's Indiana Jones, if he was alive today, the answer is Arthur Brand. Yeah, he's got a track record of recovery that's amazing from Nazi uh, art, Nazi stolen artwork to, you know, the work that he has done for uh, the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. And he's kind of not treated with the level of respect that he thinks he should be treated by the museum. Well, Amore sort of scoffed at it is what is what uh, Casey Sherman said. Um, and is scoffed at the idea specifically of bringing Arthur Brand on to help the recovery efforts. And, you know, just again, like the price list, like the reward price list, I don't understand why it wouldn't be considered. It doesn't really make sense to me. It seems logical. Now, I know everything can't be taken in, you know, but I think there have been a, a lot of ideas presented in the public uh, over the past few few years especially um, because of the podcast last seen and because of our podcast and apparently there's a new documentary coming out so more than ever has there been internet rumblings about the Gardner heist internet still growing part of the reason too but these are two I boiled down ideas is my point and they're really good ideas I, I feel like it's just kind of it's really hard I can't I can't defend not considering these ideas. Yeah, it's really confusing to me as well, because what we're talking about is the recovery of the, these pieces of art. And all we end up seeing out there from the people who are granted access to the information and to the museum, there's only a select group of people and from the media like uh, WBUR and the Boston Globe who produced Last Scene. They were granted access to the information and to the museum. And it's always focused on the, the usual cast of characters, the usual suspects. It's always focused on the IRA and Whitey Bulger and, and William Youngworth and, and all of the cast of characters that, that just are in this like circle of whodunit. Miles Connor, all, all in this like whodunit, 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 when some effort and some money could be put towards. And when I say money... If Arthur Brand is charging them money to do this, that is money well spent. Are you going to, you know, if they actually wanted to put effort into the recovery, why are they producing a, a multi-part limited series on called Last Scene when and not not putting finances towards Arthur Brand, who's got a proven track record? Well, who said Arthur Brand's asking for finances? I mean, I don't. Well, know. I'm just saying. Hypo I, I'm not hypothetically Asian speaking, whatnot, but yeah. I, I have no idea. I don't know how he gets paid, but if that if it, if that's what it comes down to, yeah. like, well, we can't afford Arthur Brand. Okay, then maybe you should reconsider what you can afford because how much money did it take to produce Last Scene and to send people to? across the ocean to to check out a lead that you know isn't gonna play out i mean you you think the ira is gonna be like oh yeah that vermeer oh oh you're you're the globe oh if only the globe had reached out before the ira no they're not giving it up if they have it i think a wise guy looks at the the reward as it's stated in good condition and all the items together and they laugh at it. I'll be honest. It does. Doesn't yeah. it seem like, I mean, we hear it from, from a former thief in turbo and we'll, we'll hear it in an episode coming up real soon on empty frame season three. The, the way it's formed is a joke. It needs to be adjusted. Yeah. And it, it was a joke way back in the day when they thought that they had recovered the artwork when Tom Mashberg went to the 
warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn, to see all of these like curled, like rolled up, uh, alleged paintings that were stolen from the museum. And he saw the Sea of Galilee, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was unrolled in front of him. And then all the art experts were like, that's impossible. There's way too much lacquer on there. There's way too much finish on there. Uh, that would have been destroyed if you had rolled it up. I thought that was put to bed then. Like, these pieces of art are not going to be returned in good condition. They're not even going to be returned in poor condition. They're going to be returned in horrible condition just just because, like, you can't keep them for for 30-plus years in the elements. I mean, this is, this is one of the Dutch Renaissance. I'm not an art expert, so I don't know what the likelihood of them returning at, after 30 years are. I don't know what the likelihood of that of 13 pieces of stolen artwork are still likely to be together at this point. It seems unlikely to me, but again, I'm no expert. You know who is, though, is Anthony Amore. He's written several books on art recovery or art, you know, stolen art. So this is something that, that should be put into play. Like, he, he is a smart guy. You know, he's talented. Yeah. He's written books on the subject. He's written books on the subject while he's been employed as a security director at a museum. So, yes, he should know. He should be an expert. So he does know those things. So, I mean, may- right. maybe maybe he knows that they they are all together. You know what I mean? But whatever, it, it hasn't worked, you know, and it, and it is too bad. Um, I think the, the city of Boston and the world, they need these back. I mean, imagine the the amount of visitors that would visit the museum with them back. I mean, honestly, seeing the empty frame is kind of interesting, but seeing the actual painting would be so much better. Yeah, you do get some people there that go to see the empty frames, but imagine if you got them back and you put them back on the wall in the condition that they were found, and then you had a retrospective right next to it, like a little digital retrospective. Here's what they looked like before they were stolen. Here's some some images of the empty frames, and here's what they're what they look like now. You can see them on the wall. There'd be lines out the door. They would have media there for years. Every anniversary you could go there. This this I mean this could be a juggernaut. And they then they wouldn't have to be conflicted about sort of uh, promoting or profiting the heist. You know, they can still do the heist walk. This is what happened. It's a fact. That's what happened at one point in 1990. Absolutely. I will say this. Everything that we talk about with the heist really does not affect our uh, impression and our feeling and our, our admiration of the museum and the woman who built it. Go to GardnerMuseum.org. Check out everything they have going on. Once we're out of isolation, if you're able to, get out there to the Fenway neighborhood of Boston and check out that museum. It's absolutely gorgeous. You could go through that whole museum and not look at the empty frames, not even think about the heist, and still be really floored by how beautiful it is. The artwork is incredible. The building was built specifically to be this display of this incredible collection, this personal collection of Isabella Stewart Gardner, and she lived in above the museum, you know, and it is a beautiful courtyard, beautiful architecture. I agree, Lance. I love it so much with so much of my heart that I want this artwork back. And we're just trying to do do the right thing. If we sound frustrated, it's because we've kind of been dealing with um, some sort of bizarre politics to us, to be honest, uh, in producing this show. And so, and we're just trying to help. And uh, so I hope we're pushing in the right direction at this point. And we'll be back in two weeks to push more. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter. And check out all our shows at crawlspace-media.com. And also swing by Private Investigations for the Missing. That is investigationsforthemissing.org. 